Um, before I get started, I, I want to say uh, thank you for all the, the calls and the text messages um, for, for apparently my loss uh, yesterday uh, with the Kentucky game versus Arkansas. I did just want to say that it meant a lot uh, how many of you reached out to me and your kind words and uh, your ribbing. So it was really neat. Uh, to get to experience that yesterday. Um, but anyway, it was, it was a good day, and uh, I'm happy for uh, my, my fellow Hog fans uh, that none of you gave me tickets to. So I'll just say that. Uh, all these big Hog fans here, no one extended any tickets to me. But with that, uh, speaking of games, I do want to kind of just remind you of what JJ said earlier. We just want to have a night tonight of fellowship, of fun. We'll have pizza, we'll have games. I personally volunteer to play games with your kids. So if you bring your kids, I'm playing games with them. Um, it's going to be fun. Just come hang out, uh, fellowship with one another for a little bit in the family, in the Wortham Center uh, from 5.30 to 7.30. So if you can, please come to that. Uh, with that, I wanna, we're going to be in the book of Esther this morning. So if you want to go there on your phones or Bibles, whatever you're, whatever you're using, that's where we're going to spend all of our time this morning. The book of Esther is fascinating to me for a lot of different reasons. Primarily that we've, we read it wrong. And what I mean by that is the book of Esther is written as a comedy. It's not intended to be as, as serious and as scary, I think, that as sometimes we interpret it to be. There are elements of the book of Esther that we look at in today's lens and we're like, oh no, or like, this is not cool. And, and, but the intended audience of the book of Esther would have read the book with this kind of comedic light to it where there are these characters within it that are, are larger than life, that their actions, their words, they, they're intended to make you laugh and question, where is the story taking us? Like, what, what is the author really trying to do? What is the intended message or application of the book of Esther? And so it, it starts in this really kind of unique way where we get this picture of a king. Uh, this king's name is basically King Xerxes. That's clearly not what's on the screen. Uh, or what I could, sorry, I'm not... Kindle's got me, but uh, in, in the book of Esther, it, I'm going to say King Xerxes just because I grew up going to speech therapy. I'm not doing that to myself. Uh, y'all have showed me so much grace over the past weekend. Um, but this happened in the days of King Xerxes, the same Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. This is one of those, the, this, the phrasing here is to let us know this kingdom is vast. In Kentucky, we have this phrase from Pikeville to Paducah, which just means across the entire state, it's everybody is encompassing it. And that's what the author is trying to say. It's King Xerxes' kingdom is so vast, it's almost unimaginable. That's kind of where we're getting this, like, the satire, this comedy here. We're, we're already kind of leaning into, like, how big is this dude's kingdom? In those days, when King Xerxes sat on his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his no officials and ministers. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were present while he displayed the great wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and pomp of his majesty for many days, 180 days in all. Now, already we're getting these larger-than-life images in the book of Esther. His kingdom is it's from India to Ethiopia. It is larger than you could even imagine. And not only that, he's throwing these extravagant parties that last longer than anything that like, I have ever been a part of. When I was prepping for this, I thought like how tired I am just thinking about this party. Like it's the plates, it's the washing of the plates, probably night after night. You've got to make sure everything is set. Like, no, thank you. I'm not interested in this. But this guy, he's partying so hard. It goes on and on and on. But it's really painting this picture of it's, it's kind of beyond our imagination. 
And that's kind of where the comedy leans into this. Like, it's supposed to almost be, like, how silly is it that he's throwing this party for this long? It's ridiculous. And in the next passage, uh, in verse 10, on the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, this loosely translates to drunk in Greek. Um, I like that they were kind of polite with the merry with wine, but that's, he's, he's intoxicated. Um, but on the seventh day, when the king was merry with wine, the seven eunuchs who attended him with him, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing the royal crown, in order to show the peoples and officials her beauty. Now, there are some biblical scholars that think what's happening here is the king is drunk, and what he has done is he's ordered Queen Vashti to come before him wearing only the royal crown. Like, that is kind of what some people lean into in the translation of she was supposed to present herself only with the crown. And it would have been this spectacle, this like, this, whoa, look, what's going on here? And you talk about like a party turning, like that's what's happening here. But if, if we don't apply that, I think what we can actually kind of explain what's going on here is this king is trying to show you how powerful he is. We've already heard how big his kingdom is. That his, his reign goes from India to Ethiopia. He's throwing these extravagant parties. Everyone is kind of under this guy's thumb. And this, if, if we remove kind of the crown element of it, what's happening is the king is saying, look at how everyone obeys me. Everyone under my rule does everything that I tell them to do at the drop of a dime, whenever, wherever they're going to do it. And so we're painting this picture of this larger-than-life king who gets everything when he wants it. And that's kind of where the comedy, again, reinserts itself. Verse 12, But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, conveyed by the eunuchs. At this the king was enraged, and his anger burned within him. Now the, the ancient readers of this, the intended audience, would have read this and thought it was funny. Because this king should have been given everything that he wanted. And we have this moment of rejection here where Queen Vashti says, No, I'm not doing this. And he would have been embarrassed. And, and the audience, we would have mocked him. And we would have laughed when we heard the story because this isn't how the story is supposed to go. This is why it's funny. It's because she should have done exactly what he told her to do, but she's not doing it. And she's not doing it in front of all of his friends. All the people who were there to party with him, to kind of enjoy the splendor of his wealth and his kingdom. And she's rejecting him. And so you probably know the story of Esther what happens next is the king is like, well, she's not going to do it. I'm going to find me someone else that's going to do it. Uh, and he's encouraged by these eunuchs. But after these things in, verse, in chapter 2, after these things, when the, king, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had, been done, what had been decreed against her. The king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint commissioners in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in the citadel of Susa under custody of Haggai. This is like the worst version of The Bachelor, uh, brought to you by ABC. But we'll give him credit. But this is like the worst version of this. It's, it's weird, but it's also drawing into this larger-than-life story that, that the author of Esther is wanting to paint. It's wanting you to think like, Okay, so this king, who can't get what he wants, has this vast kingdom, this immense wealth, and he's in this situation where he's wanting to find a queen who will, will do whatever he tells her to do, and everybody's like, well, there's just going to be this wonderful bachelor contest. Surely these women will want to be with King Xerxes. And it's intended to be this way of like, how will he find his perfect queen with all of these women who will come kind of into this weird contest? 
And the king's eunuch, Haggai, he's like, he's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetic treatments be given to them. And let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now again, like, if we're ancient readers, if we're the intended audience of this, this would have been comical. Because we're like, how is he going to find the queen who's going to do everything that he wants her to do? Remember, we just had Queen Vashti who has been dismissed. There's some people that think she was beheaded. Some people think she was just removed or kind of exiled from the kingdom. It's unfortunately not terribly important to us. It probably would have been to her. But to us, it, we're not given the details of what happened to Queen Vashti. But we get this entrance of our next character here that is the most important namesake here. Now, there was a Jew in the citadel of Susa whose name was Mordecai, son of Jair, a Benjamite. Now, a Jewish audience would have kind of saw this as a signal of, okay, here comes our hero. Here comes the main figure in this story, because we have the Benjamite reference. We have somebody that we are familiar with, this name, this tribe, that we would have known that the hero of this story will come at this point in the story. And we're given the name of Mordecai to say, okay, we've got a dude that's entered the story, but what happens next? Mordecai had brought up, verse 7, Hadassah, that is Esther, his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother. The girl was fair and beautiful. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as her own, as his own. Now, I spent the past few weeks in the story trying to trace down the father of uh, Esther, because we're given two references to this individual within the book. I believe in chapter 2 and chapter 9, uh, there's a reference to Abihail, A-B-I-H-A-L. And there's five individuals within the Old Testament that is that, that used this name, three of which are women, immediately knocked them out, that probably wasn't the father, and then two individuals that were males. The one male that I was like really hoping was going to be Esther's father is somebody that's mentioned in the lineage of Jesse. And I just want you guys to know that, boy golly, when I thought that I was tracing Esther to Mordecai, or to Jesse, I was like, this dog is going to preach. And I, I got stopped my research. I called Whitney. I was like, I've got it. The people will come forward this Sunday. It's going to be a great example. And then I realized that that's not who it was. Um, and I was like, well, starting back over at zero, I really was like, guys, you guys are going to be so impressed. But Anyway, it wasn't that guy, and I actually had to go outside of the Old Testament to figure out who they were talking about. And I had to go into the Midrash, which is basically the Jewish commentary, where rabbis would write commentary on the text to kind of give you additional learning of it, additional references, stuff that maybe you didn't understand from just one reading. They would write additional papers on it. And in the Midrash, they believe that Esther's father died while her mother was pregnant, and that her mother died during the pregnancy, during the actual delivery of Esther, thus resulting in Mordecai adopting her. And I mention that because it, was a, it would have been a really good point if it was the other one, but I mention the losing both parents because it helps us shape the character of Esther. This is an individual that probably her entire life wanted to know, like, am I good enough? Like, why, why couldn't I have had an existence like everybody else? Or, or why did my parents have to be taken away from me? Why, why is Mordecai my caregiver? Why am I worth it? And I believe if we understand the character of Esther, she probably questioned that her whole life. If, if a moment is placed before me, am I enough? Can I do this? Can I, can I take this moment and do something with it? Like, am I brave enough? Do I have what's in me? Because I feel like my whole life I haven't had it. And the cards have been stacked against this girl her whole life. And then she finds herself in the middle of this really weird bachelor contest with King Xerxes. 
Now, I want to pause that story for a little bit and go fast forward into 1971 in Little Rock, Arkansas. When I moved here, this was a story that I was told a lot by people who uh, are familiar with Arkansas history, and I've done my research in it, and it's fascinating to me. But in 1971, there was a man by the name of Fred Smith. Does anybody just off the top of your head know who Fred Smith is? That's just an old airplane. Okay, so we got a few. So that's just an old airplane. Uh, doesn't reference a story, but we can stop right there. Uh, go back one more. So that's just an old airplane. I, fig- I googled 1970 airport, Little Rock. That came up. It's not really necessary for the picture for the story, but it like paints a picture of what we're talking about. But in the 1970s, specifically 1971, a man by the name of Fred Smith bought an ownership stake in Arkansas aviation sales. Came to Little Rock. He was from the the Memphis, kind of northeastern corner of Mississippi. But he was in Little Rock, and he bought the the controlling stake of Arkansas aviation sales. And, And the story goes that over the next two years, Fred Smith wanted to expand this business. Now, local lore is that he went to the airport and he was like, look, for me to grow this business, I need something more from the airport. Some people believe that he was asking for his own runway. Some people was asking, thought that he was asking for financing, whatnot. This guy had this dream of revolutionizing the postal industry. He went to Yale and he actually wrote papers when he was at Yale about transforming the, the postal service. He had this vision of if we could transport mail faster through planes, that we could transform the way that we deliver mail. Next day, air mail was like a reality. And the beautiful thing about the story is when Fred Smith would write these papers, they gave him C's. The Yale professors were like, this idea is ridiculous. This is pretty neat that you think that you can do this, but you can't. It doesn't work. These are airplanes. And while he was in Little Rock, he was buying this business, and he had some kind of financial issues But the story goes that he couldn't get what he wanted from the Little Rock Airport. And so he decided to go back home. Two hours, uh, I was going to have to do the geography, east, there we go, two hours east to Memphis, Tennessee. Went to them and they said, if you want to build this business, we will give you that airport space. Now the next picture uh, is an earlier picture. This is Fred Smith here and you can kind of see what I'm talking about. I'm talking about FedEx, Federal Express. Go to the next picture. Uh, there's a weird picture that, that I thought was kind of neat kind of today and then back in the day. And then there's one more picture of, I think, the FedEx operation in Memphis now. Now, the reason why I'm talking about this story is because it's fascinating to me. Uh, there are a lot of business historians that believe that this was one of the biggest decisions that a city made in the past 30 years in our country that transformed the trajectory of this community of Memphis. If you've ever been to Memphis and looked up in the sky, you probably saw a FedEx plane going to or from Memphis. The Memphis airport is one of the busiest airports in our country because of the influence of FedEx. If you've been to the zoo in Memphis, the zoo is basically funded by FedEx donors. If you walk across it, you see a plaque, and it's like, this person worked for FedEx. It's similar to going to Fayetteville, Bentonville, and looking at some of the Walmart donors. It's the same impact that these businesses have had on the community. But I'm talking about Fred Smith because it affects us. Think for just a moment if that had gone differently in Little Rock. Like how Little Rock would have been transformed if, when presented with that moment, a different decision had been taken. And you look at the trajectory of Memphis and how it's grown and what that city has because of FedEx, that, that moment missed us because it wasn't you know, taken, it wasn't embraced. And I've thought a lot about that story in relation to the story of Esther because it's, it's very similar, where these moments that are placed in front of each and every one of us can shape our trajectory. 
It can shape where we can go, what we can do, the influence that we have on ourselves, on our neighbors, on our colleagues, our communities, our neighborhoods. But we have to be willing to say, you know what, I can't maybe see where this is going, but I know that this is a God-given moment that I'm supposed to embrace and do something with. Now the story of Esther, going back uh, thousands of years, but going back into the story of Esther, her, her uncle Mordecai finds himself in these weird situations where at the end of chapter 2, he thwarts a, an assassination attempt by these two guys. If you're familiar with the, sto- the Veggie Tales story, I believe they were peas. I don't know. Uh, and if some of you know this, I think they were the meanest peas. And, and I always thought that Veggie Tales was weird. It's like if you want kids to eat vegetables, probably don't let them talk. But um, in, in the story here, Haman, at the end of chapter 2, thwarts and he finds himself in this like unique position of prominence. Where like people are like, oh, Mordecai knows what he's talking about. And as Esther rises to the ranks in the kingdom, these two individuals are finding themselves at this apex of like, we have control and we have influence, we have power. And then in chapter 3, another individual comes in named Haman. Now Haman is an egomaniac. Uh, he, he wouldn't mind me saying this. This is kind of his who he is. But Haman was a monster. And Haman just loved power. It was what drove him. And what Haman does is in in verse 2, and all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and did uh, obstinance for him, which means to pay honor, to pay homage uh, to Haman. For the king had had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or uh, or pay honor to him. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down to him, Haman was infuriated. But he thought it beneath him to lay hands on Mordecai alone. You see that egomaniac thing? He's like, I hate this dude but I'm not going to do anything to him. I'm going to do something worse. So having been told who Mordecai's people were, Haman plotted to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of King Xerxes. Now, what happens next in in chapter 3 and chapter 4 is intense dialogue between Esther and Mordecai, where Mordecai's like, our, our people are going to die. They're going to suffer Uh, In verse 1 of chapter 4, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. I get it. There's a, you know, a, a dress code. But in every province, whenever the king's command and decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. This is just a, a... process of mourning that was very customary at the time. You see this in the book of Jonah as well. Um, But in chapter 4, starting in verse 16, or excuse me, in verse 12, when they told Mordecai, so they're sending messages. Mordecai is sending messages into the kingdom, uh, and then Esther has responded to them, sending out another message. But in chapter 4, verse 12, when they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. This is probably the, the cornerstone of the entire book. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Now think about that for just a moment. When we think about the character of Esther again, this, this orphan, this individual who, who doesn't have a family. Mordecai has adopted her because both of her parents have died. And she's in this, this weird situation where now she is the queen. She's connected to King Xerxes. 
But they have these, these practices where like, she can't just immediately go to King Xerxes and be like, hey, my uncle who's running around the kingdom in a sackcloth, like, that guy has an important message and I need to bring it to you. Like, that wasn't something that she could do. And all of a sudden you're in this moment of like, can she embrace this, this moment, this experience, this opportunity that's in front of her? And Mordecai, these words of Mordecai, perhaps you've come to royal dignity for such a, just a time as this. It's, it's powerful and it's life-changing. And it's one of those reminders that God places these moments in front of us. Not so that we can look at them and be like, well, have fun down in Memphis. Like, because God wants us to do something about them. Those feelings where your heart is pulling you towards a situation, towards an opportunity, towards a conversation, it's not because God just wants you to feel funny or silly. It's because God wants you to respond and act at those moments. When we don't, they pass us by. And we miss our opportunities for change and for growth. And Esther says in verse 16, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast, will, will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. I want to go fast forward again to another story of late, and, and JJ mentioned this in his announcements, but uh, the, the ongoing crisis in the Ukraine where Russia is invading the Ukraine. Like, even as we speak, that's happening. But if you've looked at the news recently, and I'm always fascinated by the people who are like, I don't watch the news. They're so, like, joy-filled people. And I'm like, well, how do you do it? How do you just turn it off? And, and I just, I love the people who say that they don't watch the news, but it's not me. I, I want to know. I want to know all the details. And so if you've been watching the news, they, they've kind of done a, an in-depth story about the president of Ukraine, President Zelensky. And we've got a picture here of him. And this is actually not a picture of him when he was president. Um, if you're familiar with the background of the president of Ukraine, you would know that his career began as a comedian. Um, this is a, a fascinating story to me, but this individual began his career as a comedian, actually on a television co show called Servant, let me, I think I got it right here, uh, Servant of the People, where, spoiler alert, he portrayed the president of the Ukraine. This is like, I'm not making this up. It sounds insane. But this individual began his career as a comedian on a television show portraying the president of the Ukraine. I was talking to Kendall a moment ago. That this would, there was a period in American history where people wanted Charlie Sheen uh, from the West Wing to be the president because they're like, he kind of looks like a president on TV. But that's what happened here in the story was he did such a good job of being the president on television that the Ukrainian people elected him president. They actually made a party. The party that he ran on was called the Servants of the People, which is exactly the name of the television show. Like, they're not even pretending at this point. It's, this is what we're doing. And this is the, like, his, his face of joy, I think, is also shock of, like, this is crazy. I am now the actual president. I portrayed the president on TV for years, but now I'm actually that. Now, if you've seen this guy recently, this third picture is probably what you've seen him doing. Uh, he's dressed like this in, in most situations that I've seen him recently. But as, as I, I looked at this story and I thought about how it might relate to Esther, I thought about, like, he was the only character that came to mind recently of somebody that has risen to a place of prominence who I guarantee you did not believe he would be where he is right now. 
I guarantee you that when he was filming that television show where he was pretending to be the president of Ukraine, he was never thinking, hey, in February of 2022, I'm actually going to be the president of Ukraine, like defending my country as Russian forces try to overtake it. Now, one of the most striking things that I read this week about this guy was when the United States uh, offered him help. They said, hey, if you want to get out of the country, we will offer you that exit. We will give you help to get out of the country, you and your family. And if you read the headlines, he basically said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. And there was another video that came out after it when there were a lot of reports that he had left the country, that he wasn't going to stand and defend Ukraine. And uh, I think Kendall's going to translate the Ukrainian for us, right, Kendall? Um, I'm just playing, but we, we've got small subtitles, and I will explain it, but if you can't see it, but Kendall, let's go ahead and, and roll that clip. Всім добрий вечір. Лідер фракції тут, голова Офісу Президента тут, прем'єр-міністр Шмигаль тут, Подоляк тут, президент тут. Всі ми тут, наші військові тут, громадяни суспільства тут, всі ми тут. Захищаємо нашу незалежність, нашу державу. Так буде і далі. Слава нашим захисникам, слава нашим захисницям. Слава Україні! Слава Україні! Слава! 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 He's here. He's here. I'm here. There have been a lot of reports that, that President Zelensky had, had left the country, had fleed when the opportunity came. But what he said was when it got tough, what he decided to do was to stay there and defend, to stay there and work for something. I've thought a lot about the story of Esther in relation to Zelensky because there's, there's something there that we can take away this morning. That when, when opportunities are placed before us to do something powerful, to do something amazing, to do something life-changing, our opportunity is not to run. I think what God is calling us to do is embrace those moments and do something with them. Look different for each and every one of us. Maybe your moment is in your, in your home. Maybe your moment is at your job or in your school or wherever it is, but God is calling you and directing you to do something in those moments. And it would have been so easy for this guy to be like, okay, like the way that I can survive, the way that maybe I can continue to lead, even with death knocking at my door, the, way, the best way for me to do that is to run. But what that dude did was say, you know what, I'm going to stay. And I'm going to commit to the moment that is before me. And so this week, that is my challenge to you. When God puts a moment in front of you, when God starts pulling at your heart to lead you in a direction to do something, to change something, to make an impact on somebody or something in your life, to embrace it. Don't reject it. Don't run away. Don't say, you know what, I can't do this. This is too hard. Or God, maybe I'm not ready for this. God did not equip us to be afraid, but God equipped us to be courageous and to be willing to embrace the moments that he puts in front of us.